0: I am joined by Graham Frost today. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Amy. It's a great pleasure to be with you.
0: Oh, well, I'm really excited to share your heart-shaped decisions with everybody.
1: Thank you. Yeah, great. I'm looking forward to it as well.
0: So a fellow podcaster, what's the name of your podcast?
1: My podcast is called the Heart-Shaped Decisions Podcast.
0: There we go. It's exactly what it is on the tin. Yes. (laughs) Brilliant. And how long have you been podcasting now, Graham?
1: Uh, just I guess it's coming up uh, around about a year, yeah.
0: Fantastic. And how have you found being a podcaster? Well,
1: it's really interesting. It's connected me with lots of interesting people that I may not have met otherwise. And um, Because most of the people that I've interviewed for my podcast, with about probably five or six exceptions, I didn't know any of them before we had the interview. So um, you know, I've met some really interesting people because I said that, the criteria kind of worked out that it was um, people could be interesting, but they couldn't be famous. Although I have had one or two people that are a little bit famous.
0: Is that Penny Haslam?
1: Not yet, no. (laughs) Not Penny yet. No, that's a good idea. I must ask her.
0: Because she's all about a little bit famous, isn't she? Yes, she is,
1: yeah.
0: Brilliant. I love that. So what was the reason behind not having famous people on the show?
1: Probably because I don't really know any, (laughs) um, if I'm honest. No, what happened was my podcast um, developed, It just an idea uh, occurred to me um, when a friend of mine asked me to be on his podcast. And I said to him afterwards, um, you know, how difficult is it to record a podcast? And he said, well, if I can do it, you can do it. And so I thought, well, we have just gone into lockdown and uh, all my work had disappeared overnight. And so, you know, I was trying to concentrate on what I could do rather than what I couldn't do. So I thought, well, I can start a podcast and make it about heart-shaped decisions and um, see where we go. And I just put a call out on LinkedIn and got a few people involved and one or two people that I already knew. And, you know, I thought I might do 10 or 12 episodes and then stop. Um, But then, I'm, you know, I'm still doing it now, a year later, and that's... 70-odd episodes recorded.
0: Wow, and I'm sure it will continue to be a lifelong journey because there are so many people out there who are making heart-shaped decisions.
1: Yes, I mean, that is, that is true, yeah, definitely. It's something that, um, you know, I just came up with the idea of heart-shaped decisions about less than two years ago. In all honesty, I've been speaking about my story for quite a while. Um, And I was doing a talk for a group of people, actually the Professional Speaking Association in London, um, in September 2019, I think it was. And I'd already spoken there before, and I thought, what can I give them that's new? And uh, I was lying in bed one Sunday morning, and this idea came to me about heart-shaped decisions, because I realised that all the major decisions I've ever made in my life... Right up, you know, from the age of seventeen up to the present day, really, have all <clears throat> have all been heart-shaped decisions, and you know, they are all based on feelings rather than thoughts. Because I feel before I think. If that, I don't know if everybody else is like me, but um, you know, most people I'm told that you know, the decision-making theory is about you know, thoughts leading to feelings, leading to actions. Well that's with me, it's generally speaking the other way around where I go feeling, then I think thought and then and then action. And sometimes not much thought goes into it at all. Yeah, that's how I left, I left home at the age of 17. If I sat down and really thought about it, going off into the big wide world on my own, cutting myself off from my family to have a you know, have a different life to what they had planned for me, I probably wouldn't have done it. But because I just thought, you know, I've got to get away, and the only thing I could think, I've got to, you know, this just doesn't feel right for me. And the big wide world out there feels much more exciting and much more, you know, all the things that I wanted to do to be challenged, you know, to be, to learn new things, to make my own choices. Um, that was, you know, that was what um, you know, made me make the decision. It wasn't about thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to do for work? What am I going to do for money? what am I going to do for food? Uh, It was just about, the whole thing was about feelings.
0: And you mentioned about your family having a sort of a destiny planned for you. What was it that you needed to break away from and move out?
1: It was a very strict church. Uh, I mean, I'll talk about really strict We didn't have radio, television, recorded music. You know, imagine growing up in the 1960s and you couldn't listen to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. I mean, you know and um, no you know, no competitive sport. You couldn't go and watch a football match. Um, you couldn't really support a football team. You know, all the things that uh, I suppose normal young lad wants to do were forbidden, and we, you know, we had to go to church four or five times on a Sunday, and then uh, every evening of the week, and the older you got, the more churches you were supposed to, you know, the more church services you were supposed to attend. And... Um, I just thought, you know, this is my life, you know, in front of me. I'm going to get married to somebody from the church that I probably don't even really like because it's, you know, they weren't arranged marriages, but they were, you know, there were certain uh, people that, that you could marry and some that you couldn't kind of thing. And so um, I just thought, yeah, this you know, isn't, isn't for me, you know, and started when I was about nine years old when I wasn't allowed to go around to somebody's house for tea after school. You know, I used to walk walk to school with a young girl in the bottom of our road, and she invited me around for tea, and I wasn't allowed to go because we weren't allowed to eat with other people that weren't in our church. So you couldn't even go out for a hamburger. In fact, one of my first acts of rebellion on my own at the age of 14 was to go to a wimpy bar And sit there and order a burger and chips and a a glass of coke or something, and sit there and eat it on my own, hoping that nobody saw me. That you know, that he's part of our church, and they didn't.
0: Wow, what what a tough upbringing, And, and I mean, so different to I would imagine the majority of your peers.
1: Well, yes, I think I mean, yeah, because you know, I mean, I'm sure. People have had worse upbringings. I've met people since, you know, that have had worse upbringings. Mean, we, we, we always had food on the table and I wasn't, I wasn't beaten or, you know, I mean, uh, we always had, um, my dad always, nearly always worked, you know, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I was the oldest of six children. So um, there were certain good things about it. You know, I always try and find the positives, but um, the idea of actually staying within that, the confines of what I was allowed to do was just just didn't feel right to me from quite an early age. And so I had I had to leave. <clears throat> and you know, leaving was, you know, it was a big, a big I had to just plow plow, you know, when I do my talks, I talk about, you know, w- walking down the road from my parents' house with both my parents walking down the road behind me and they were both in tears. And I'd never seen my dad cry before when I was 17, you know, and um After that day, I didn't see my mum for 27 years. Wow. So I don't regret it.
0: You don't regret it? No. Okay.
1: No, I regret the fact that, you know, I regret the fact that 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 kind of control is still in existence. There's still still members of my family are still in Mm -hmm. that church.
0: So let's say, let's take you back to that wimpy bar, you're age 14, and you said it was your first act of rebellion. Were there more?
1: Well, actually, it probably wasn't my first act of rebellion for (laughs) myself, because actually my first real act of rebellion was when I went to comprehensive school. I was born in Essex and um, I went to a comprehensive school when I was 11 because I failed my 11 plus, which was an exam you used to take in those days to... um, discover whether you went to a comprehensive school or a grammar school or a secondary, modern, or whatever they were. And, uh, excuse me, and um, so I went to this comprehensive school when, shock horror, when I got there, there were no other people from my church there, no other students from my church there. So I thought, oh, I can, you know, I can, um, nobody will know what I get up to. So I made friends with another lad who lived uh, nearby. To the school, and I used to pop, started popping around his house after school, which I what I'm supposed to do. And uh, one day we rode our bikes into the town centre, went into Woolworths, and somehow we managed to find ourselves doing a little bit of uh, shoplifting from Woolworths. And you know, many people did that. I think you know, I've got, uh, many people of my age and a little bit younger would put their hand up and say, "Yes, I did that too." Unfortunately, we got arrested. So imagine being in the strict church at the age of 11 and uh, being arrested and taken to court. And I was actually put on probation at the age of 11. um, But the big thing that happened there really wasn't, there was absolutely no support from me, from anybody in my family at all. Everyone just stopped talking to me. And um, I I had five male cousins who lived in the same town. And um, I used to spend a lot of time around at their house because the next two members of my family down from me were sisters. So I used to go around and see my, my boy cousins, you know, and spend quite a lot of time around there. And they were told, because of what I'd done, that I was a bad influence and they weren't to invite me around. So that, that, was a big, that was a big thing that happened when I was 11, yeah, and then... Um, then we moved to London about a year and a half after that. And that was what really opened things up to me because suddenly here I was going to a um, a large comprehensive school in the east end of London, very multicultural. And um, I thought, oh, you know, this is different. I like this. I like uh, this whole thing because there were so many people that were different there, you know. But whereas when I'd grown up, it was only 30 miles away. But in those days, um, Sound like an, an old so-and-so, but um, in those days, thirty miles was quite a long way. Uh, now it's just down the road, isn't it? But um, thirty miles from you know London was just a completely different experience for me. And you know, I think you know I've often said that if my parents hadn't moved to London, I might not have rebelled as much as I did and gone gone and left because you know look, rebelling in Chelmsford wouldn't have been half as much fun as it was in London. <laughs>
0: So let's take you to that moment where you are walking away from your parents and, and they're crying and they're behind you and you didn't see your mum for 27 years. What happened in that gap?
1: Oh, goodness me, well, it would take about, would take about a week to tell the whole story. That um, What happened was I actually went to work in a pub in, in West London and um, so I went, you know, I took my... Took my a few belongings with me and I went to work in this pub and I'd never worked in the pub before. Except I was only 17, so I wasn't really old enough to drink in a pub. But in those days, you could get accommodation with a job in a pub. And um so I, you know, I had I had a room upstairs and I worked behind the bar during the day, and I'd never done it before, so I got called speedy because I was so slow. Um, <laughs> And, um, yeah, I, was, you know, I wasn't very good at working behind the bar to begin with, but I got better. But it just turned out to be one of the roughest pubs in West London. It was in the middle of a massive council estate with tower blocks and all that kind of thing. And I'd never lived there. You know, I'd never experienced anything like it. But the people, some of the people were actually really, really nice people. They were what you call rough diamonds. But unfortunately, some of them were. And um, I fell into bad company while I was working there. And um, ended up, you know, actually leaving the pub and stealing some money and going off and and making a life a petty crime for a few months. Which involved me, you know, uh, robbing hotel rooms, for example. I'm not proud of it. I did it, you know. Um, I was actually used by somebody else to do all the dangerous stuff like crawling along um, windowsills four floors up. I don't know how I ever did that because I suffered from vertigo, but but uh, <laughs> I did it because I wanted to belong. I think you know I think that a lot of young people, and maybe not quite such young people, get into bad things because they want to belong to something. And I certainly felt I certainly did that, and um, <clears throat> found myself, um, yeah, found myself actually, you know, being arrested again. And to cut a long story short, I ended up in a young offenders institution called a Borstal uh, at the age of nineteen. And um, you know, one of the officers—I mean, that was that was an interesting experience. I mean, I didn't I didn't see it as a completely negative experience because I was uh, two people in that place actually helped me. You know, one of them was uh, one of the officers sat down with me and. Um, said to me, he said, look, Frosty, he said, you're not a criminal. He said, what are you doing here? Uh, he said, we know that, you know, some of the lads that come in here, there's not much we can do for them. He said, but you're not like that. He said, you've got something better about you. He said, I don't want to see you back in here again. And another one of the officers let, used to let me listen to his radio in the kitchen, and I got into soul and funk music through, through that, and I've been, which I've been into ever since. I did a did A bit of DJing and that kind of thing many years ago, and uh, you yeah, know, still they still love that music, so yeah, that there was positives. I always try to find the positives in every situation, and there were, cert- there were certainly positives there. <clears throat> and um, so, also, you know, I was helped massively by a couple, an Irish couple around that time, who they actually took me in off the street because I, I actually ended up homeless. And um, at one point, just for the one night, you know, but you know, I've done some volunteering to help homeless people over the years, and you know, it's it's about the worst thing that can happen to you—not having a roof over your head. And I know I have experienced that. And uh, this couple took me in off the street and gave me a job. And when I came out of the Ball Store, they took me back in, and you know, I carried on, and they you know, they gave me a chance, and. Um, so, you know, everybody needs somebody. And they certainly made the heart-shaped decision to give me another chance. Um, and then, you know, things got, you know, things improved. And, uh, you know, I came out of Borsal, went back to work behind the bar, ended up um, meeting a young lady. Uh, we were, you know, quite happily together when I, when I was uh, about 21, 22. And... Um, I got a job on the railway, which I ended up. I ended up working there for twenty-four years altogether. And um, I started to feel ill after about six months of working on the railway. I started to feel ill, losing weight. Um, you know, all sorts of things were going wrong with me. Here was me, you know, a young, fit young man. I wasn't a fit young man anymore. And it turned out I had testicular cancer. Um, so I had to. I had to fight that and. Uh, you know, it's... Here I am, you know, the wonders of the National Health Service. I mean, in 1979, the treatment for, for testicular cancer was very, very debilitating. And at one point, I actually weighed seven stone. And at the end of the chemotherapy, I had 24 mouth ulcers in my mouth. I couldn't eat or drink, and I nearly died of pleurisy. But I'm still here. <laughs> and... um that yeah, that was a, i I won't say that it was a. I won't say that you can be cured of cancer through positive thinking because you know there's been a, there's a conversation going on about that at the minute, um, and I have been told off in the past for suggesting that it's possible. But I do think it helps. I do think it helps if you. I yeah. When I was told that I had cancer, I thought right. Whatever I've got to get through. You know. I can get through it. I can see. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel already. Because I had a life that I wanted to get back to. I had somebody that I was happy with. I had a job that I, I was enjoying, and life. Yeah, you know, life was looking good. And then I was hit by this, uh, you know testicular cancer. And, and um, but I just focused on getting better. You know, it took it took over a year, over a year of treatment. And um, but obviously that was forty over forty years ago. And um, yeah, here, here I am, you know, and and am still, still learning and still developing and still um, making heart shaped decisions.
0: Wow! I mean, that that's so much happened to you before you even hit twenty five, and now yeah, we're now yeah. you know over sixty, and you're now able to look back at those moments, which I'm sure weren't easy. Any any one of those stories that you've just shared with us in terms of the limiting restrictions that you had as a child and then Mm. going through to being homeless and and I know you said it was just for that one night but it it was the whole events leading up to it and around it and, and thereafter it must have been a really difficult time.
1: It was but I mean I don't you know I don't think I ever I never actually gave up, you know. I always—I remember waking, even with the homeless thing. You know, people say, "Well, how did you?" You know, "How did you only spend one night homeless?" I said, "Because I—I I decided that I wasn't going—I wasn't going to have a second night of it." I thought, "What? What can I?" You know, I thought, "I'm not." I woke up and I thought, well, "You don't really sleep." It's on on Victoria Station, you know, um, and it's still very similar. Actually, the bit of Victoria Station in London that I stepped on is still very similar. And I've been, you know I've been back there many many times, and um, but uh, no, I just sort of thought right, okay, so what am I? What can I do? And I thought well, I can, I can work behind the bar of a pub. So I couldn't go back to the pub I'd been at before because I'd run away from there and stolen some money. So uh, you know, they wouldn't have me back there. So I thought right, well, let's find another pub that needs some staff Um And I went down. Walk down Victoria Street, and I've done that walk so many times over the years, you know. And um, walk down Victoria Street, and the first pub I went into, they looked me up and down as if I was something the cat had brought in, um, and they said, "Well, no, we haven't got any." But uh, turns out it's quite a pop's pub, with MPs go in there because it's not far from Parliament. Um, it's called the uh, it's, it's called the Albert. In Victoria Street, I went down the little side street, I saw another pub down there, and I walked into the pub, it was about, about like half past 10 in the morning, the pubs weren't even open properly. And um, I said, "Is a landlord around, the landlord was an Irish guy, and he said, um, he said, yes, yeah. I'm the landlord, he said, what can I do for you? I said, I'm looking for a job. He said, um, he said, I haven't got any jobs. He said, if you go around the corner, down that little street over there, he said, uh, "My friend uh, John runs that pub down there." He said, "Yeah, um, I think he's looking for somebody." So I went down to this next pub and I walked in and I said, "Is John there?" And John was a stout chap, looked a bit like a bank manager, he was dressed in a suit and tie. And um, I said, "I said your friend from the other pub round the corner just sent me to see you." I said, "Because I'm looking for a job." And He looked me up and down. You know, I had long hair in those days and drooping moustache and probably wearing platform shoes because it was the 70s. And um, he looked me up and down and he said, you're looking for somewhere to live as well? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, so I'll give you... He said, you worked behind the bar before? I said, yes, I have. And he said, okay, so I'll give you a job. I'll give you a chance. Um, And half an hour later, I was working behind the bar at his pub. And then when the police uh, caught up with me a few months later, uh, for some stuff I'd done that I hadn't hadn't been dealt with, uh, he ca- he came to court and stood up for me. And then when I was sentenced to Borstal, he actually came down to the cells and spoke to me and said, uh, "Look," he said, "I've seen enough of you in the last three months," he said, "to know that you're okay." He said, "So don't worry about," what he said, "because you haven't got anybody." So I he said, "I know what it's like." Turned out he'd actually grown up he'd grown up in an orphanage. I found out years later and um yeah so he he kept the job open for me until i came out heart-shaped decision
0: yeah and and it was probably other people's heart-shaped decisions that led to you just adopting that as your your mantra
1: yeah, because when I look back on other people, you know, recently, I mean, loads of people, I said probably about five people in my life that have really so you know, when I worked on the railway, one of my um, bosses on the railway, um I f- I found out just recently that he passed away. And I've had lost touch with him, unfortunately. And um but he found I read his obituary. I like, you know, yeah, we got on quite well. He was he was one of those bosses that he never put himself above anybody else. You know, he was—he was the boss, but he was also part of the team, and that was how I tried to be. and you know, I eventually got my own team, and um, it turned out he that he gave me a chance one day. He said, "He said you're looking for a day's work," and he took me out on his train with him. He didn't need me, but he saw me standing there, and he thought, "This, yeah, you know, this guy needs a day's work," and because I was, I was on standby. And I ended up working with him for eighteen months. He taught me everything I know about leadership because he made a heartshaped decision to take the And it turns out he grew up in an orphanage as well, so he had he had you know something. He he set he set out to help other people.
0: So what's the why now? What is it you're doing? What's the plan? What's the mission?
1: Well, really, it's about helping young people in particular to make you know to understand that the choices that they make now. Are, going to define their lives and um because my you know the choices i made when i was 16 17 18 defined my life and you know the, particularly the you know, particularly the good decisions that the heart shaped decisions that i made to and some yes you know, so, uh, yes i mean I, I always i also refer to my stupid gland which lives in my head you know sometimes that takes over and i do stupid things and it's just really about helping young people to make better decisions and to you know, show show them some empathy because I know what it was like to be a confused young person who didn't really know what he wanted. Um, I knew what I didn't want, but I didn't know what I did want for quite a long time. And it's just about helping those young people in terms of, you know, doing talks for them, doing mentoring, uh, working with small groups uh, in, in schools and colleges and universities and children's homes uh, to, to actually help them to understand that yeah they are important and they can actually they can actually make decisions and they can be whoever they want to be because if somebody said to me twenty years ago that I'd ever be a professional speaker I would have laughed at them.
0: <laughs> so exactly that. Let's talk about that the, about you believing that you could do it. Was it an easy transition for you to to move out of the role of Working in the railway to becoming a professional speaker.
1: Well, it was interesting because uh, the first thing that happened was, uh, in after 17 years of working on trains and serving people food and drink and lead, leading a team of people doing that, I was uh, offered I was offered uh, the opportunity to go into training and development to train other people to do what I'd been doing. And the first question I asked when I was offered that opportunity was, does that mean I've got to get up and speak in front of people? And the answer was, yes, but we can give you that skill. What we can't do is duplicate the experience that you have. So I said, okay, well, I, so I went, I went for the job and I got it. And then I realised that I, you know, I was actually quite good at training people and, you know, being, um, once I got over the nerves of speaking in front of an audience... I was okay. you know, I got, I remember the first presentation I did, I was literally terrified. Um, but then, you know, over, over the period of about seven years of training and doing all sorts of training within that industry, I got to enjoy it. It was the best, yeah, the best job I ever had. I absolutely loved it. Some of the best work I've ever done was done in that seven years. And um, then I left there uh, and uh, somehow or other I found I heard the Toastmasters and I went along to, Toastmasters and um, learned you know, to speak and uh, you know, won a few speaking competitions and uh, spoke in front of quite large audiences there. And I actually thought, oh, i quite enjoy this. And then, and then somebody said to me, um, you know, you've got this rather unusual story. Have you ever thought about speaking to young people? And so I went to Milton Keynes a few years ago one day And did a did a talk to a group of young people in the school. There was a young enterprise awards ceremony, and I did this forty five minutes. You know, told my story, took some questions, and there was two hundred and fifty teenagers and teachers there. And you know, I felt you know I felt really good about it, and. um, Afterwards, two of the two of the young lads came up to me in the car park. Afterwards, and said, "Excuse me, were you the gentleman that just spoke to us?" And I said, um, "Yes, I was." And they said, well, "The cover just said you inspired us." And I remember driving home from that you know, that gig and thinking, do "You know, what? I've actually got to do this because you know I, I owe it to the young people of today to actually share my story with them." So that's how I got into being a professional speaker.
0: And and that feeling of knowing that you're inspiring others was probably one of the reasons why you knew that the podcast would work as well.
1: Yes, I I think so. Yeah, because it's—I mean—it's not so much me talking on the podcast, but all the people that um, I've interviewed on the podcast, without any exception, they all have some kind of inspiring story. And they—a lot of them don't think it is inspiring. A lot—you know—a lot of them think. And you know, I was talking to a guy last week, and he was just telling me his story and I was like, I was just completely gobsmacked. And I said, wow, that is, I have, I've had people that have come on my podcast and they've told their story and they've never told anybody before. And so that, yeah, know, it's, it's a real privilege to be able to get people to talk like that. Yeah, and I
0: love, I love the fact that, you know, you're, using your superpower which it is a superpower to to be able to articulate these heart-shaped decisions and how you are making these choices in life and and talking about the positive thinking and I know that we we, you mentioned about the the issue with people saying that cancer can only be combated if you have positive thinking because obviously that there are so many people who are positive that don't make it through Mm. and it's not enough It, it is to do with the the NHS, to do with the the healthcare that you're receiving, and again, it there is an element of of luck, you know, just making it through.
1: Oh God, oh, yeah, definitely. I was one of the lucky ones, you know. I definitely. I mean, there were, yeah, there were. There was a chap in the next bed to me, you know, for about the first three courses of treatment. He decided that he couldn't, he couldn't take any more of the treatment. Um, he took his girlfriend on holiday. And the next time I went back, you know, I went back to my next course of treatment, he wasn't there. I went back to the next one, he wasn't there. And I said to the nurses, have you heard, have you heard from him? And they said, well, you know, I'm really sorry to have to tell you he's actually passed away. Um, because he didn't keep up with it. We were told, you know, if you don't, if you don't keep up with the treatment, then, you know, we can't actually guarantee that anything if you don't go through with the treatment. So despite the fact that it made you feel, you know, I've never felt so bad as that treatment made me feel in my life ever. You know, you literally didn't want to do anything for the three weeks in between courses of treatment. And um, I used to sit on the I used to sit on the sofa at home and watch cricket on the telly. That's how I got into watching cricket, which is one of my great loves, you know, so um there's always a positive to be found somewhere, you know.
0: So- Let's ask you the question about the reunion with your mother. It must have been an emotional one.
1: Yes, well, it was, it was It was. funny. Well, funny is maybe not the right word. But in 1999, I think it was, I decided I was going to, was going to go and, um, you know, seek my parents out. I knew where they, they'd moved house, but I knew where they lived. I turned up outside my parents' house. And, uh, you know, can you imagine a, a guy in his 40s, Actually, not being able to pluck up the courage to go and knock on their parents' door, you know, I mean that, that's that's where I've got to. And um, so anyway, I thought, well, I'm going to walk around the block, and then when I get back, I'm going to go and knock on the door. When I got back, there they were on the doorstep with one of my sisters and two children. So they were already out of the house. So I just walked up, and, I, and my mother didn't recognise me. Because I've lost my, you know, by that time i would more or less been, had as much hair as I've got now, which is virtually none. And um, of course, she'd she'd known me when I was seventeen. I looked completely different. Um, my dad recognised me because he'd seen me he seen me a few times a few years earlier. He'd come, you know, he'd come out in search of me to try and um, persuade me to go back a couple of times. Mum didn't know who I was, but then. Great, you know, the great thing was that in 2001, they actually rang me, and they said, um, "My dad rang me and said we would like you to come and see us." So I went to see them, and ever since, my mother passed away in 2017, she was nearly 86, and she was very poorly. But I was actually able to see her a few days before she died, and I went—I went to her funeral, uh, which wouldn't—you know—that that wouldn't have happened. And, you know, I still keep, in, I mean, I haven't been able to go and see my dad for the last year or more because of COVID. He's in a care home in Scotland and um, he's 90 and he's got dementia. But, you know, I write to him every month. And I know that he keeps the letters because whenever I go and see him, um, he might not remember a telephone conversation, but he can pick up a letter and read it again. So I know that he reads my letters because they're on his table and i go and see him
0: so the message i'm hearing today is to that you learnt to speak as in you found your voice
1: yes
0: (laughs) and you were then able to help others and help the young to find their voice and stand up for what they want and make those heart-shaped decisions that's right well, it's it's been an absolute pleasure to hear your story and to share it with the audience. It's been an incredible journey that you've been on, and yes, the power, the positive thinking power that you have there has kept you through. But like you said, you see the positive sides, but you also see how the difficult moments have benefited you as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche. So there's no no gain without pain, but. Um... It is it is to a certain extent true.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure that going through testicular cancer needed to teach that lesson.
1: No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend that. No, that's something. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think nowadays the treatment, you know, the treatment for cancer has come on in leaps and bounds. And you know, I've had friends who've had chemotherapy and one thing and another recently. I mean, it's still bad. It still has an adverse effect on you as well as a positive effect. But it's not like it was in the 1970s and the early 80s. Um, they have made it much more humane. But, you know, um, I, I'm still here to tell that tale. So
0: And I'm sure there's many reasons why you are. So, again, I want to say thank you so much, Graeme. How would people get in contact with you?
1: The best way to find me, I'm quite active on LinkedIn. If you look up Graeme Frost on LinkedIn, my podcast is Graeme Frost's Heart Shape Decisions. You can find that on all the usual platforms. I've got a website, grahamfrost.com, or you can email me, graham at grahamfrost.com.
0: Perfect. Well, I'll make sure all of those links are available in the show notes, so thank you for that. Again, thank you so much, Graham, for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Have you got some final words for the audience, please?
1: Yes, I have. I think, you know, it's just about, you know, whoever's listening to this, if you take one thing only away from this, this podcast is to... Use your heart for a little bit more in your decisions. You know, think about how you feel, or maybe, you know, make it about how you feel, not about how you think all the time, because you will make some much more interesting decisions. And I've had an interesting life. I'm continuing to have an interesting life. And I'm sure the reason for that is because I make heart-shaped decisions.
0: If you would like me to help you focus on your why, then please book a free 20-minute coaching call via canadley.com forward slash Amy Rowlandson. And if you haven't already, please sign up for the Friday Focus weekly newsletter via my website, amyrollinson.com. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.